0: This week's guest, James Mansfield, is a master at learning on the job. When he and James Flower, a friend from Agricultural College, decided to set up their meat box business, both of them had to perfect the art of butchery from a standing start. They also had to scale up their culinary skills very rapidly so they could serve mouth-watering dishes to 2,000 VIP guests at Richard Branson's V-Festival. Now, I was super excited to chat to James since, with a lot of press recently about eating less meat for the sake of planet Earth, it made sense to explore some issues around what good and bad practice looks like. Is it a case of eating no meat or is it eating? better meat. Caring more about animal welfare and recognising that how the animals we eat are cared for, what they eat and what drugs they take must surely be part of the informed conversation. These could be tricky things to ask a butcher but as expected James was engaging, knowledgeable and happy to educate. This willingness to jump in at the deep end and learn on the go partly explains why Field & Flower is so successful today. It's also because they've stuck to their principles – only supplying traditionally reared grass-fed beef, along with free-range poultry, pork and lamb. It won't surprise you to know that they've designed their own box packaging too, which is more environmentally friendly than the traditional poly box. As you'll hear now, James's hospitality career began in the same 0-60 vein, front of house at one of London's most famous restaurants. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. James Mansfield thank you so much for sparing the time to be on the podcast much appreciated no problem at all um, can you just explain as has become customer you've listened to a few but where on planet earth are we please James uh today we're in Lark Hall in Bath in my house excellent so yeah log burner on in the background that's uh, right beautiful and uh, and I drove down some incredibly windy steep hills to get here but I love Bath it's an awesome part of the world isn't
1: it? yeah we um we absolutely love living here yeah hills out the back and um it's a bit different to south London I was where gonna we say, yeah, from you're a
0: London boy aren't you so how are you coping with the
1: change is it yeah well my business partner calls still calls me a townie um but yeah it's um it's amazing to be up here and I think you know we love London we still do um but it I think you just you need a bit of space in the end, um, yeah. and a bit of time away from the business is always good.
0: Yeah, we were doing well to blend in because you've got a dog, a cat, and out of the window I can see cows in a field, and you've got a wood burner. So that's I think right. you're ticking the. We've um, moved to the country. <laughs> yeah, We've got going. some wellies. We've actually got a door. badger that comes into no, the garden. Yeah, we do. Really?
1: Yeah, badger gate. It's a big thing on this terrace. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the
0: local gossip. Yes, what, that's right. What the badgers have done this week. Good. Yeah. Well, look, I'm really uh, genuinely um, excited to, to chat to you. There's so many uh, questions that I've got around. I suppose the yeah, supply of, uh, of food, particularly around around meat and grass-fed meat and all that kind of stuff. So, super excited to, to come and ask you questions in person. So, thanks again for sparing the time. But I want to start with your your introduction to hospitality was a, a pretty well-known uh, restaurant in London, I think. Can you just explain your yeah early memories of uh, of your exposure to hospitality? I suppose.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was a, it was a great time. I learned a lot. Um, I left sixth form um, and. Went and applied for a job at the Ivy Restaurant in London. Um, That was when I was eighteen. Nice, you just started at the Ivy. No kind of build up, (laughs) no McDonald's kind of. Yeah, that's right. Straight into the Ivy. Yeah, Yeah. and um, yeah, it was a bit of a shock to the system, to be honest. Um, But they were they were great, and it was only ever going to be for uh, a year because I was then going off to university. But um, yeah, we went in there, and um, it was yeah, not probably nine, ten months of. well, it was a really intense experience. What was your role? Were you in the kitchen? I was office? a commie waiter. Okay. Yeah, so at the very bottom. So <laughs> we, you, you had two jobs, basically. You, were, you would come in and check the sheet and be in the briefing, and you'd either be running the trays up and down the stairs all night um, because the kitchen was three floors below um, the main restaurant. Oh, wow. Nice. Uh, or you'd be on the floor serving um, the 300 people that were walking to the restaurant that night. So um, they kind of looked at me and said right okay well you're the youngest guy here you don't have any experience so they used to take me up to the private room and um, the managers were amazing they would kind of train me kind of on the job um, because i couldn't carry plates uh, for the first kind of couple of days and they said look you need to work really hard but you'll you know you'll get there and um it was, um, yeah, it was a really interesting experience. But I was working there when Mark Hicks was the executive uh, chef. Okay. So Excellent. I used to take his lunch up to him um, in the offices. Really? And um, he was a great guy. Was he? Mm, he wasn't yeah. one of those yelly, shouty chefs. He wasn't. And there were a few of them about. Yeah, um, right. But he, Mark was, um, he, I think I always sort of described him as, it felt a bit like what I think are walking into the Old Trafford dressing room for the first time is like when I first saw him in the kitchen. Yeah, but- he everyone is a kind of quiet and everyone immediately just respected him and yeah. what he was doing. And I think you were always wary, um, cause he wasn't in the kitchen loads, you know, did he have a side to him that might be that kind of shouting? Yeah, yeah. yeah, but he never did. And, yeah. um, he was um, everyone just up to their game when he was in the Excellent. kitchen, no doubt about that. But he was a really nice guy. Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: I interviewed Markets uh, a couple of months ago now, probably, but literally in his in his back garden on the south coast mm-hmm. in Perbex, he's got a beautiful place with panoramic views over the ocean, and uh, he seemed super chilled. He would had a, a nice bottle of white wine. <laughs> <He> <laughs> it was yeah. a beautiful sunny afternoon, yeah. and he seemed that like he was in quite a happy space. Apart from the fact that he said he'd never known the restaurant industry as challenging mm. as it is at the moment. So, yeah. um, so did you progress from 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 the person that runs everything up and down the stairs into the the main restaurant? Yeah part? I
1: did. Yeah. So they then um said so, you know, there were four sections in the Ivy and um section one was kind of where they sat the very high profile section one and two the high profile VIPs and um celebrities. And eventually, yeah, after a few months I was there and actually then started to train um, and trial new uh, commie waiters coming into the restaurant. Okay. Um, which was great but yeah I was always a bit starstruck kind of working up on the floor because yeah. I was quite young and um, they had you know quite high profile people coming into the restaurant
0: okay any name dropping go on who, were you, who, who did you serve um,
1: well Hugh Grant Liz Hurley the Spice Girls Salmon uh, Rushdie um, Jerry Hall yeah lots of lots of those kind of types, yeah.
0: That's that's pretty cool for mm. the uh, for your first kind of yeah restaurant experience, I suppose, isn't it? I remember um, Gareth Banner from the Ned was somebody else I interviewed as well. Yes, and uh, he said the most important thing you need in hospitality when I asked for his tips was a comfy pair of
1: shoes. Yeah, that's right. uh, which
0: I guess is relevant if your
1: kitchen is four flights of stairs. That's away right. From... Yeah, and the shifts were 13, 14 hours long. You know, yeah. so you had to be comfortable. That's for sure. I actually lost t- just under two stone of wow. weight working there. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. They didn't feed you well as well then. Is... <laughs> you had to go in early for staff staff lunches and dinners and I always felt like I needed my sleep. Right. <laughs> Sometimes you <laughs> hadn't hadn't left the restaurant until three or four. Because yeah. you didn't you weren't ever leaving the restaurant until the last person left. Really? That was the rule. Wow. So commie waiters were always Asked that's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Tough. It's a tough industry at that <laughs> yeah. level,
0: isn't it? Whether that bit's changed, I don't know. I'm, some of my chefs have gone up and done stages up in London, and literally, yeah, they you know they're only home for three or four hours. They're yeah. bonkers. But I, I think the industry is trying to change that reputation. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, maybe maybe it's changed a little bit. But um, as well as uh, serving famous people and, and learning your craft, you also start. That's where you start to get interested in produce, is my understanding. That's so,
1: right. How were you exposed uh, yeah. to the produce coming into the kitchen? Yeah, it's incredible, really, because you would. You'd start off in the kitchen, normally at the beginning of your shift, um, silver dipping the cutlery or um, rolling napkins, whatever it might be, before customers arrived. And um, you would inevitably in there, be in there early in the morning and you'd actually have farmers walking in the back door. So, you know, the vegetable guy with his carrots and someone with their oysters and um, these guys were, you know, it was just incredible to see them walking in with their produce, literally carrying it to the chefs. Um, and that kind of... Um, you know, obviously sparked a bit of a passion for for food. Um I used to love watching the chefs create dishes. And actually once they started to trust you, they would bring you onto the pass and you would start to garnish dishes. You would tell them what's missing, um, you know, get the right sources and actually build a relationship eventually when they they trusted you to um you could start talking about food. And actually we used to help on the cold section, the cold starters as well. Um, so we're kind of like as a way waiter heavily involved in that process when you were in the kitchen running the trays up to the restaurant right. um and um yeah it's just incredible i used to love the um chef's steak drawer i didn't know a steak drawer was the thing <laughs> until i got to the ivy and yeah. they'd pull out these steaks in a drawer and um amazing you know um beef on the bone um because mark hicks was obviously big into that he was um yeah. so yeah, it was just um, amazing to be exposed to those people, all sorts of walks of life coming in um, from kind of four, five a.m. in the morning. Okay. And had you been interested in food prior to that, or was that really the was that the trigger? Yeah, no, I had been. I, my dad was a big cook, and um, he, you know, he kind of taught us um, how to cook at home. My brother and sister, and um, we, yeah, I've always been interested in food. Um, and we used to go on farming holidays, and we've got family that live in the countryside, okay. and. Um, we got farming like in the family a few generations ago so we yeah there's definitely kind of that element to it and um yeah it was um it's just an incredible place to work the ivy in the end i kind of walked away with so many skills that um especially kind of understanding people and being around people yeah. um yeah it was just a great place to be
0: were you tempted did you think you'd end up in that kind of front of house role i suppose in the restaurant side of the industry at that point or did you not really have any idea of your trajectory
1: i can't i think i'd already accepted a place at university so i, I knew i was going to go i think i was te- i was definitely tempted because it's got a big kind of hierarchy at the ivy and they promote you quite quickly through the stages i think on the restaurant floor there were seven different um positions and they kind of said look if you stay then we can see you getting up to that and obviously like they're really well respected roles and i respect the people in them yeah. um and they taught me a lot but i I kind of at that point in my life, I was 18 and um, I was I was I was tired um, <laughs> and um, yet yeah, obviously um, had kind of my eyes on going to university. So right. what did, did you do you, at uni? Um, the first degree I did was um, in media. Um, it, was, um, it was a bit of a Mickey Mouse degree. I played a lot of football and made a lot of friends. But um, I after I'd done that degree, decided that I was going to study agriculture. Um right.
0: so yeah. Which is quite unusual, I would have thought, for a London boy who yeah. studied media. Lots of people uh, said so to me, What
1: are you doing? Yeah. Um I actually started out looking at um river keeping courses okay. and then found mm-hmm. a agricultural college. I thought maybe I'd do something like alongside a job that I was in at the time. Right. Um but actually You know, I went for a job interview at Sky Sports and got down to last two, didn't get the job. And that was kind of the spark was like, actually, I don't really care about this. And I want to go and do something I'm really interested in. So I looked up a course at the Royal Agricultural College and um, I was just going to do a year. But I ended up doing... Three. Mm -hmm. Um, I met my business partner on day one. And um, so, yeah, it was strange. And I was definitely, I kind of stuck out like a sore thumb at the Royal Cultural College. I didn't have any tweed. Um, But, um, you know, I, I, I... became manager of the football team and made some good friends and um so yeah it was it was an absolutely amazing experience in some ways i imagine that naivety of coming into it you know having
0: no kind of experience mm. having not been brought up in that environment sometimes is useful isn't it? because you question more and you learn exactly more i suppose so. yeah
1: and lots of um lots of people at uni were coming from estates the or they were coming from farms yeah. and they kind of had their Um, views on you know how farming should be done or estate should be managed Um, so uh, yeah I think you're absolutely right it was kind of um, I'll sit here and just soak it all up which is what I did
2: Yeah. yeah
0: an estate in south east london doesn't have quite the same uh, challenges as an estate in the uh, scottish highlands that's,
1: best, a, that's absolutely right I'm, yeah i was gonna say on on my first day somebody said to me um how many acres do you own that was right. the first question <laughs> really? i was asked in the bar wow and i said oh, i don't actually own any acres <laughs> um, my mum and dad have <laughs> got kind of yeah. yeah 20-foot guard in south london he said "Well, i'll give you some advice just say that your boundaries move too often, and that's why you don't know how many acres you own. <laughs> <are. laughs> yeah.
0: Brilliant. Okay, yeah, mm. definitely, definitely wasn't like my first day. No, really. no. So that little nugget of inspiration then in the uh, yeah in the Ivy, and then subsequent career. How does that evolve into uh, field and flower then, and what you do now? Just explain that journey a little bit for us.
1: Yeah, so I mean, obviously, it wasn't planned um, from from the early days at the Ivy, um, but through to to college um, at Cultural College. It was um, it was definitely something that I you know I I've gone back to college and I decided that you know this was what I was going to do and I was quite adamant that the time I was putting in to being there um, was going to result in something. Right. Um, whereas I think when I did my first degree, I was like, well, I'm just here for the degree. Hopefully, I get a degree. Yeah. But um, I met James Flower on day one in our first class and. Um, kind of said, well, actually, as we go through this process where lots of really inspirational people were coming into the college. We we're going to loads of really inspirational farms. Um, and we said, well, you know, surely there's something for us to do here. We both kind of wanted to start something. Um, and James said, well, you know, I've got great quality beef on my farm. It's a really extensive system. Uh, the beef's just going to market. So it could just end up anywhere, really, whoever was going to buy it, um, at the market. So, um, we decided that we were going to follow she looked at riverford and Abel and coal and follow that model right. um, And when, when was this you decided that literally in your first year or n- towards I the end th- of the course i th- think it was probably um halfway through the second year we lived together and right. um kind of just said you know we need to start we were the college were really good because they said you know lots of it. it was very academic you were in there kind of nine to five every day at college and there were lots of um, we did business modules obviously and it was just a you know, go away and we'd go to farms and we set projects on how you diversify that farm. Okay. Um, so we, we were doing lots of that kind of work. And we thought, well, actually, let's just now start doing projects for our modules that actually going to help us in the future if we do want to start a business. Yeah, amazing. So that's what we did. Right. So yeah. you could literally start to apply yeah. what you thought you were going to end up doing as part of your yeah. research. And, stuff. and it was a good way of going to see competitors under the <laughs> yeah. guise of our yeah, team. being a student. That's right. Yeah. yeah, which we did. And um learned a lot as well. Okay. So what was the,
0: uh, I don't know, the trigger, I suppose, to go, right, uh, meet by post. This is, mm. this is the thing that we're going to do. Was that, did that come about through some of the research that you did?
1: Or? Yeah, I think there were two things really for us. It was, should we go down the catering route and uh, you know do a kind of street food thing um, with the beef that we've got? Um, or should we go down the, the online veg box model? Yeah. And actually we started doing both at the same time and the events took off quicker our events kitchen took off quicker than the boxes, um, but we didn't. We didn't know what we were doing. Like there's you know, it's no doubt about it. We were we kind of you know we went to James's farm, chose a cow, and it went to the abattoir, and it was hung there for four weeks. And we had four weeks to try and work out um, how we were going to butcher it and how we were going to sell it. Okay, so traditionally, the meat from that farm had gone to abattoir and then just gone into the the normal food supply. They'd gone to um, a live market. So it'd been bought by a buyer and um, then, you know, it would have been finishing weight. So it would have gone off and it could, it would have been killed. And then it would have gone to, you know, it could have been flown um, out the country, up the country, supermarkets, restaurants. He just, just didn't know, but that's what they'd done. That's what they'd always done. And James went back to the farm at the end of college and said to his dad, you know, is there space for me here. And it, you know, it's a small farm and, um, James is very traditional and how he, um, was running the farm and James said, well, actually, you know, there might be a way for us to work together here. How about we buy the cattle from you? Right. And, um, effectively you know he created a job for himself we both yeah. create jobs for ourselves but through doing that and so it works really nicely it still does and all the cattle that are reared on their farm come to field and flower um, right. it's a small really? herd but okay. we take all of it yeah
2: excellent
1: nice mm. and uh it feels like
0: destiny with the name as well field and flower did it take long to come up with the fact that <laughs> uh, you, you, i mean you lost a little bit of your surname
1: but yeah but i did the yeah it yeah. was never knew you were a man anyway presumably <laughs> yeah so. less relevant uh, yeah i we um we put it out to friends and family we said right. you know this is the type of business what do you think and but loads of suggestions I always remember the meaty boys and high stakes <laughs> and all sorts okay. of things like that a bit yeah. cliche but um in the end a few people said field and flower yeah. um uh, just came up with it and we can so actually yeah that, that kind of works um so yeah, yeah I stuck. think it works works really well. So your 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 ethos from the start then was around uh,
0: grass fed meat. Can you just explained, yeah. What what does Field and Flower do now, basically?
1: Yeah, well, it's really I think it's really simple. It's just old school traditional beef that's out in a field um, eating grass, and it's it's kind of that simple from um, you know, day one. Really, we we're not doing you know anything differently to what James's um grandparents were doing you know and um it's traditional um free-range extensive beef traditional breeds um they're uh, out in the field and don't hit their slaughter weight until um kind of 30 months 26 to 30 months they're slow growing breeds um it's a suckler herd which means that the calf is at foot it's not taken away and put into a kind of um shed and you know fed high protein feed rations so yeah because in the traditional so sorry if you hear me laughing every now and i should explain that there's a dog in the background what's, yeah.
0: what's your dog's name again i'm arthur arthur he's arthur every dog. now and again yeah. just comes and gives me a nudge in the bum yeah. or in the leg or whatever and i get mildly distracted <laughs> he <Sorry> <laughs> he's all good he's very entertaining i just thought i should explain in case people hear uh funny noises in the background um so yeah so i didn't appreciate something else so so generally what what and i will we'll dive into well. Welfare a little bit more, but just whilst we're on this suckler herd thing. So, what age are uh, um, baby cows, calves uh, normally taken away from their mums then in
1: the traditional system? Well, it, it, um, in our system, or no, it, in the, tra- in the in more a, intensive, intensive system. system. So, so it, well, it could be day two, really, yeah, right,
0: yeah. okay, yeah. and then straight into being fed a yeah,
1: yeah. so you could go on to um, milk powder, right, um, and then, um, you know. They will then move up into you know high protein rations, and, um, and the objective of that is so that they can grow them quicker. Exactly. Yeah, right. because it costs less money, yeah. um, and you can get kind of I say cheaper, but you can get more efficient foods yeah. for animals to eat to get weight onto them yeah. quicker. Whereas grass, you know, you don't uh, an animal doesn't finish quickly on grass. So. Yeah.
0: Okay. Feels bonkers but I want to come back to that because I've got yeah. I've got a few questions around it. So okay so basically in the in the early days then it's uh we need to to you know not not follow the traditional route because you could have presumably tried to sell to supermarkets or shops but but quite early you decided we're going to try and send this directly to the consumer so from the farm to the consumer that's right and and there were a few other companies doing this at the time weren't there? yeah
1: there were a couple um that are out there doing it like the big one is donald russell who are up in scotland um and then there were a couple in the southwest as well at the time um so obviously we ordered their boxes to see how they were doing it yeah um and um we started in james's um kitchen basically in somerset so we got the beef back um, we built we bought a fridge and a freezer and um, we made our own meatballs and burgers and um, we got um, a local butcher to vacuum pack everything. So we didn't own a vacuum packer. Okay. And we said to f- friends and family, um, you know, we'll do a discounted box. If you can give us feedback on this product. And it was right. just a set box. So it okay. had some roasting joints, steaks, beef mints, burgers, meatballs. And then um, we were both working on the jobs at the time. So we we're doing this as like our, our first year as a business was just testing this really. So okay. we were doing one animal a month. Right. And um, we would go and deliver it before work. So I'd drive up to London from Somerset into London, deliver the boxes to friends and family. And right. it gradually, month on month, it was then people, um, we had a, like a two page website where it's kind of like call or email us if you want to order. It wasn't e commerce. Right. And um, we started to get people recommended um, to Film and Flower. And eventually people started ordering that we didn't know, which was always oh, good because yeah, our, our families were always going to say <laughs> yeah, it was, it was amazing. Nice yeah. 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 Um, so, um we yeah we did these set boxes but after that first year of of people kind of giving us a bit of confidence saying yeah this is this is really good quality stuff um we thought well if we're going to make a go of this we might as well see if we can start an e-commerce website and um on that website we also kind of put a note on there about doing um event catering as well
2: okay Mm -hmm. and
1: you were doing the butchery yourselves at this point yeah so i mean we we learned to butcher. Um, right. for, I mean, actually, we did it for far too long. We did really? it for four years in the end. Oh, wow. So the first four years, I, th- I <laughs> my claim to fame, not that much of a claim to fame, as that I rolled every meatball and pressed every burger, yeah. but I did. Amazing. So um, we le- we had to learn that, really. Because I think we're a business that was all about product, really. And we wanted to know the product. And if we were going to go into the murky world of butchery, yeah. um, we had to know what was going on. So,
0: how do you learn that?
1: You go on a course or you self-taught? No, we, no, we YouTube? had... YouTube? Um, yeah, <laughs> we know. Um, we had a friend called Andy um, yeah. who taught us to butcher. Right. So he said... He was a butcher, at least. He was a butcher. <laughs> okay, he was a definitely start. a butcher. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we... Um, he now owns a business called Somerset Charcuterie Who and so he supplies us with charcuterie. So okay. it's a kind of nice end to that story. But yeah. um, he taught us to butcher. So we got some seed funding at the beginning um, and we built our own butchery in a pig shed... On a farm. Wow. And um, that was us three then in the shed. Um, in and did the you picture. say it was a cow a month or cow a week? Or cow a cow month. A cow month. And then, it, yeah. Right. And um, then post our kind of first year, we then decided to open up this e-commerce website and we mm-hmm. added chicken, pork and lamb to the website. And that would then come into our hanging fridges, and we were doing the whole thing. So we were we were butch. We were selling the products on the weekend at food shows, and then we would go to Somerset um, and stand in the butchery for three or four days, um, putting these orders together. But um, so a beef animal would come in on the block in a quarter, and Andy would say, "Right, okay, Flowers, you're in the middle. You're doing." The steaks as they come off so you can you can slice those and then um, you know I was on the four quarter stuff so the the beef mince the um, okay. burgers and the meatballs. a little bit more domain. margin forever for your bit then <laughs> that's right I wasn't trusted you're, not, you're um, not onto the fillets that's yeah. right so and yeah we learned how to do that but then obviously pork and lamb came in and we were breaking down whole carcasses and that's where our philosophy of nose to tail came from we had the whole animal there yeah. so we had to do something with it yeah. and um, inevitably it was easier for for pork and lamb and um, chicken, but actually beef, we were finding that we had some four quarter beef left over, and we didn't want to keep putting it in the freezer. So we started to be more proactive in trying to start an events business, right. and so we did that too. And that did pretty well, didn't it? You had some some famous guests in that. Yeah, going well, you yeah. on your. Uh... We just got yeah, we got lucky. Um, really, it was just it was really random, but we had a. Um, we had an inquiry come through on the website to say, will you come and cater the V Festival, the VIP area for us? It was from Virgin. Mm. And um, we, we ended up doing that. But in between kind of signing that contract, we kind of had six months to kind of work out how we could make that work. I mean, it's 2,000 people served in three or four hours for two days. Wow. and Yeah, so okay. yeah, um, it was interesting. Uh, it, it went really well, <laughs> but um, between... Um, us getting that inquiry and going to that we started to do um, smaller private events and food shows and um, learning you know how to cook burgers and Love it. so I mean not I like the fact you just said yes for- and then worked it out afterwards yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll say we yes. could have turned that opportunity down yeah
0: because you were actually doing the cooking for that as well
1: then were you yeah we. Yeah, we so was fully self-taught the chefs are you didn't get Mark Hicks to come in and help you out you weren't, no. you weren't that buddy buddy friendly with him <laughs> no. at the Ivy well we did actually contact him and say can we get your advice not on that it was a bit later on but about um our business and you know what you think we should be doing and whether we should be doing any restaurant trade so okay. we actually met him he was really really nice we oh, went to his restaurant with him and um yeah it was he i don't he, i don't think he remembered who i was but that yeah. was fine <laughs> you know we were out there trying to get advice from yeah, as many really people nice. as possible
0: that's the one that keeps coming up in this industry that is such a a decent bunch of human beings mm. in hospitality basically that they they do all seem willing in the main to kind of help each other out and uh
1: yeah definitely yeah. it's a really friendly industry yeah, yeah. and um Everyone's very supportive. I think you've got to be, really, um, because I think everyone's fighting the same battles. Yeah, that's mm. good. So in those early days, you're literally... You're part event company, part
0: meat mm. box company. How long did you run that sort of double life? Because that's hard graph. Just doing events is hard enough. And yeah. so let alone you're the chef, you're the butcher, you're packing the boxes, you're doing the whole shebang. How long did you keep that going for?
1: Um, it was two years, actually. and right. The last you event. you see daylight? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We just... It was it was because our online sales were growing yeah. and we couldn't um, keep working seven days a week. Especially the type of events we we're doing on the weekend obviously required, um, you know, long hours, mm. and uh, we weren't getting much rest, and we weren't focused on what we sh- what where the opportunity was. Um, I don't think either of us. Um, had as much of a desire to grow the events business as we did the online sales. So, um, it was actually, we stopped, the last event we ever did was, um, Glastonbury 2011. Um, and, um, yeah, that was the year that Beyonce played, and uh, we just was this the VIP, VIP stuff again? No, or you, it, or it you was we. No, we actually with the masses. That's right. Yeah, and it's quite oh. the sums involved at Glastonbury were quite scary as well. We we walked on site having spent eighteen thousand pounds to kind of be there. You know, wow. from the pitch to the product to the um to the team
2: yeah.
1: um to the hiring of equipment, water, etc. So. Yeah, it was tough and we just about broke even. But, wow. That's um, harsh. Yeah. Yeah. And we kind of said, look, we were on site for seven days. Yeah. I think half of our team left before Glastonbury even started because it was torrential rain and people mm. weren't sleeping and we were kind of waterlogged. And really? were like, mm, maybe this isn't the best thing to be doing. so harsh and it's make yeah. break those kind of things, isn't it? It is. It, and on you winter. have to take a long term view as well. Yeah. yeah people that do Glastonbury do it and look at it, I think, over like five years, yeah. not just on one year.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but there, are obviously, you know, again, we were kind of winging it. You no, know, we weren't a proper event caterer. No, that's okay if you've got resources to cope with a bad year. But
0: if you go in and lose a load of cash, then that's tough, mm. isn't it? So, mm. Okay, so you you part the events, and did did you have a business mentor who helped you? Because sometimes it's hard to see the wood for the trees when you're buried mm. in in the actual day job. Then isn't it? Did somebody come and go? You know what? Why don't you you know focus on on the home delivery side, or did you just realise on your own?
1: No, I think we realised on our own but we did have a business mentor so one of our early customers was Paul Lindley who started Ella's Kitchen the yep. baby food home company and um, he he became a customer and then said you know if you ever want any advice and stuff um, let me know and um, so we used to meet him and get his advice on things so that was really valuable for us nice um, it's all about your network isn't it it's not bad if you can go to Ella's Kitchen and mark Hicks, <laughs> <is> it <laughs> to pick their yeah. brains that's uh, yeah. It's good yeah. Going. yeah exactly yeah no we were very lucky in the advice we got um, but no, I think we were excited about the possibility of um, being the kind of Riverford or Able and Coal in our space yeah. and that's what um, was really driving the decision to do that Okay, um, and what year was that? 2011 okay. summer of 2011 oh. yeah. so was it at that point then
0: that you needed to start looking at bringing on <clears in all throat> more uh, other farmers and outsourcing yeah. butchery and uh, was that easy finding other people that met your kind of criteria I guess?
1: yeah it it was because there's lots of the same type of systems in the West Country, uh, right. in Somerset, even and that James knew. Um, so we, you know, we were very lucky in the fact that we could go and kind of handpick and approach farmers that we knew and Amazing. knew that they were doing. They were farmers the the right breed um, with the right system, the right diet. And we'd go and stand on the farm and choose, you know, those animals. And um it was um it was fantastic. And in the end, we ended up people were, were still are knocking on the door. We probably get a new producer every week. So you know, that's, yeah. that's so, good, isn't it? Mm. So chatting about them a little bit then, um, on, on your
0: website and I think in mm. some of the some of the stuff I've read about you, Stuart, the chicken farmer, comes yes. up regularly as being yep. a sort of uh what's the word? A kind of uh, yeah, a good a good benchmark, I yep. suppose, of the kind of thing. Why is uh, why is How Stewart Farms the right approach and can you just tell us a little bit about him and how yeah. he farms
1: yeah sure yeah we love Stu um, he's worked he, we've worked with Stu for five five or six years now um, so we originally had a, a organic chicken farmer um, who uh, eventually I think went out of business so um, Stu is not organic he's free range and um, he's based just outside of Radstock he does all our poultry including some game as well so he does geese and turkeys at Christmas for us and we've actually met him last week to talk about that. They've so been on the ground since July, the turkeys. Um but he's a free-range chicken farmer and he's at the top of his game. Um he's a young guy, family farm and um he believes in free-range chicken being um you know in flocks of 200, making sure the the chickens are actually outside. Um he's creating habitats um which encourage them to go outside and he's giving it's an it's not a kind of fast-growing chicken breed like a Ross, it's a, a Cotswood white. It's a slow-growing breed, um, and he he's rearing them up to an age of seventy-one days, which you know is double the amount you would find on a, some even free-range chickens in the supermarket
0: yeah amazing
1: so I, I think chickens is
0: always an example we give and I'm, I'm still not entirely happy with the compromise that we make but we're working on this but you know the the, the kind of standards of chicken you've got your kind of worst case scenario maybe imported from Thailand mm-hmm. injected with a saline solution to you know draw in water and add weight and all that kind of stuff then you've got your 35 day chicken grows so quickly it can't even develop legs and ends up sat in its own poo haven't you mm-hmm. 56 days seems to be the next level up of which there are even some uh, alleged free range and mm-hmm. uh, red tractor which will come onto in. A Minutes, so i have got mm-hmm. some questions around that, and then mm-hmm. yeah, seventy days is the kind of you know the key scenario, I suppose. Um, you mentioned him not being organic.
1: Uh, uh-huh. is,
0: that, is that a conscious decision? And do you know the details behind that as to why? Or
1: um, I think it's similar to why we went organic when we started our business. Yeah. Um, James's dad is um, effectively running um, an organic farm. He has mm-hmm. no inputs going into the land, but um, he was uh, a guy that kind of said, "Well, you know, I'm happy with how I'm farming, and I don't need the labour. We started in the recession. We looked at it and thought, well, should we put it through conversion or not? And we kind of decided that actually the customer, if we conveyed um, our message correctly, which was, you know, we look at farms on an individual basis, extensive, free range, low input, um, we would um, be fine. And we, we didn't want to have to put that organic label on because I think it had a perceived value of, you know, being more expensive. And in a recession when we started, that was something that we... We're keen to avoid um yeah. so we um we we had a chat with Stu, and you know he's he's not organic but he's very proud of the way that he's running his system um i think there are there are not uh, well there aren't many things um that would stop him from being organic um yeah. but he's growing home growing cereals on his farm to feed his chickens. Oh, okay. And they're... I was gonna ask about the feed and where that goes. <laughs> yeah, that's so... often
0: the thing that gets in the way of exactly all Exactly. Yeah. The feed, so, so.
1: Yeah. That's it. So um I think, you know, if that's something that, you know, you feel strongly about, then you you know there are loads of really great organic chicken farmers out there as well mm. um and we're we're kind of saying well this is Stew's system if you you know if you buy into it and it's mm. it's proper free-range chicken and the animals are very happy and um you know they're eating Cereals are yeah. the farm. Then it's then it's okay. I think that's got to be the key, isn't it? And, and you're
0: doing it. And uh, you know, I feel for the average consumer because they don't have that opportunity. But then it's why they need to buy from companies yeah. like yours, I suppose. But the key thing is to go and meet meet your supplier, yeah. isn't it? Meet your meet your producer. Look yeah. them in the eye and find out what compromises they're making. Mm. And if it's simply the case of not jumping through the often uh, sort of financial implications of jumping through the organic accreditation hoops, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've dealt with farmers who are way too small to mm-hmm. go through that kind of exactly. uh, process, and it seems pointless, and 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 the, it's just meeting those people and trusting why that's the case, I yep. suppose. Um So am I right in saying that rather than following an external accreditation, you've basically come up with your own set of guidelines? Is that right? And can you just explain a bit about what do you look for then when you go out and meet a farmer and look them in the eye?
1: Yeah. So we, um, it's really important to us that if we're marketing free range and, you know, putting the farmer's face on our website, that we're out there in the field with them. So we do that actively. Um, James Flower, my business partner, also his sister's um, working in the business, Claire, at the moment and she's writing our own set of welfare standards. Um, So so we've finished our um chicken welfare standards and we're now writing our um, lamb and beef and pork right. and we we're doing that because as you said earlier there are certain standards that small smaller farmers um are struggling to hit to kind of hit in terms of um the accreditation and also the cost as well um and i think it's you know, some standards are quite sort of broad stroke in what they do. Um, and we're trying to be more individual uh, and look at our farmers on an individual basis. And then going back, so we touched on this a little bit earlier with beef. So I want to understand the traditional approach.
0: And I had a good chat with... Um Tom Foot from the Open Air Dairy about this and understanding in the dairy industry uh, the compromises are made with regards to uh, animals living in barns. And Tom was very good actually at saying, look, it's not it's not a kind of a right or wrong approach. You, mm. you decide your approach and kind of where your level of compromise is because in his system, you know, he doesn't have milk for three months of the year and to, to a lot of people that's not going to be an ideal level of compromise, um, but he was very good at explaining. I suppose the difference between uh, intensive farming, should mm-hmm. we say, rather than traditional, because mm-hmm. traditional actually is what you're going back to in many ways, isn't mm-hmm. it? But intensive uh, farms in dairy, you know, brought up in a barn, um, you know, their whole lives, or, or at the very least, you know, brought back to the barn twice a day for milking, whereas his cows are outside all of the time. Um, so intensive meat cattle farming mm-hmm. what does that involve so you say you know cattle's potentially born taken away at a couple of days old yep. uh and, and fed are they, are they kept in a in a barn sort of most of their lives my understanding is that you know these are we grow them for size and for yep. girth and for speed of growth can you just explain about yeah how the intensive system works and then we'll talk about the yeah
1: sure i worked on a beef farm uh, that was supplying a supermarket and they would take dairy calves at three or four days uh, they would come in and uh, they'd be put onto powdered milk um, and they would then grow, obviously, away from their mothers um, up to a point where they were then weaned onto high-protein feed and they would be in a shed. And the farmers and farm would be looking at daily weight gain. So it's all about how quickly that animal was growing. Um, and they would try and finish them at 15, 16 months. Um, and they would predominantly be inside the problem was that they were obviously feeding them high protein feed stuff so that might be bread cake um oranges fruit uh, all sorts of things that a cow shouldn't eat really um and um it was obviously a kind of race to the bottom so it was all about trying to produce um this meat as quickly as possible so it could be sold in the supermarket for as cheaply as possible and um you know, cows should be outside eating grass. And um, I think, you know, you look at why that product was being produced. And I think it's because the supermarkets put a demand on um, farmers. Um, I know there's a lot of pressure on farmers that are in contracts to produce that type of beef. And um, I think we also have a responsibility as consumer to say, you know, why is that pack of beef mince? a quid or why is that chicken three pounds and um, I think we need to ask more questions when we're in the supermarket about those products mm. but so that's you know an overview of a fairly intensive or very intensive beef system and then the opposite is um, how James rears his beef which is you know out outdoors in on grass there are no buildings there's no high high protein feed they're traditional breeds and um, you know they're they're being sorted at 26 to 30 months. Um, it's a traditional beef system. So, you know, they're two very different things. But I think currently um, there needs to be more education about um, beef systems because they really are kind of black and white in terms of, you know, there. And obviously there are farms in the middle as well, but there's loads of different farming systems and the way that we're producing beef isn't, you know, just as it's being portrayed in the media. And I think it, I don't, you know, I don't know, but lots of what we see um lots of stuff in the press at the moment i think a lot of it comes from america and the feedlot systems that are out there and you know emissions and um see lots of documentaries on netflix about that and it's it's, they're very very different systems to what we're doing in the southwest of england rearing cattle on grass and Mm. sheep on grass Mm.
0: yeah it's interesting isn't it I think it is it is about education. I don't think the consumer would be happy. Most consumers, I mean, I, I, you know, we're very in a privileged position probably where we can decide uh, whether to spend a little bit more money on the meat that we buy. Having said that, I do think that, you know, one of the opportunities is, is just to buy meat less often. Definitely, uh, yeah. And, and we cream. shouldn't be
1: buying meat every day of the week. We shouldn't be eating it every day of the week. It's, you know, it's it should be a product that is in our diets, I think, you know, Two or three times a week, um, and we have lots of customers that tell us that that they budget with our boxes, so they will buy a field of our box. They won't buy any other meat from anywhere else, and that's it. You know, and they'll have that over you know three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, and yeah. that's I think I, that's the way to do it. It's, it's interesting that you say that because I imagine there's a lot of butchers who uh,
0: who would just say you know buy as much as my meat as possible. Mm. I need to take the cash. Mm. Uh, why do you say yeah have meat only two or three times a week?
1: Because it's not sustainable the way that we're currently, um, rearing meat, you know, in, in the world, like we, we will not be able to keep eating cheap meat like in the years that come. Um, I think we need to be more responsible. Um, we need to, uh, we need to be looking at individual farms and systems and say, right, this is a type of meat that, you know, we're comfortable eating and um, it's not been intensively farmed. And, um, you know, we we're big advocates of that. We think that our diet has to be balanced. Everything has to be in moderation, and um, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I think we've we've got a set of customers that kind of appreciate that. You know there's a compromise somewhere and if we can kind of help with that then you know hopefully the business keeps going from strength to strength. Yeah it's interesting isn't it and and we spoke about this uh, before we started chatting where I gave you the admission that
0: I've been following a plant-based diet for Mm. the last 18 months because I wanted to learn the flip side of the debate and the argument I suppose um, which has been interesting but it's also fascinating to see that in in the traditional farmed system and I haven't got my head around you know all of the answers yet myself but um certainly in farming you know we spread manure over the over the land to kind of you know rejuvenate the soil to enable us to grow the crops and actually it feels like a balanced system there's a i think it's called polyface farm in the u.s or have you, have you read the book omnivore's dilemma no i read that really really good read mm-hmm. actually but when you get the system right you know the benefit of having a broad range of animals on the farm and and a really diverse kind of system mm-hmm. it, it seems to be self-feeding and and there is an argument to say that yeah you know we do need uh cattle and pigs and chickens mm-hmm. also on the same farm that's kind of growing the, the the veggies and the grains and all that kind of stuff because yeah. they come the mixed farming farms. systems yeah it seems yeah. to yeah but it's interesting to so that yeah even even in your line of work i suppose that you see that as important do you think it's realistic you know are we at the point where humanity just goes you know what i can buy a, a bar 500 grams of mints for a quid now and that's just the system and, and and uh we've just got used to it and that's the trajectory or do you do you feel like we're on the point of change
1: i think we're on the point of change because our customer feedback is that actually they're leaving the supermarkets to come to field and flower like that's the feedback we get and and lots of that is because the product isn't great um, in the supermarket so i think people are looking for better quality products um no if you don't hang beef then it retains lots of water um if you don't have a traditional breed it doesn't have the qualities that come with the fat that are in a traditional breed. Um, There are lots of corners cut on that product that's going into the supermarket. And I think people are definitely coming to us saying, well, you know, actually we don't want to eat meat every night of the week. It's not tasted very good um, anyway. And um, we're gonna try you and see what we think. And um, hopefully more people go that way, but clearly, you know, protein's a big part of people's diets and I'm not saying like we're the only way. Um, definitely not. Um, but do I think that really cheap quality um, meat should be on the on the shelf like at a supermarket for a quid? No, definitely not.
0: Yeah, um, no, I agree. There are there are other sources and, uh, you know, we've debated this a lot in the restaurants and we're trying to hold people's hands and it is about yeah having meat less often but improving the quality but by putting the kind of the plant-based burger on our menu next to the beef burgers whereas mm-hmm. traditionally we probably had a little vegetarian section or even mm-hmm. a separate menu and it was kind of a, a, a almost like a second class citizen part of the menu we're now actually going you know what we can be part of the solution we just need to hand your hold your hand on this journey so you know we might have a chicken curry and then there's a plant curry the mm-hmm. beef burger and then the plant burger and the, even with the nachos and all that kind of stuff so yeah yeah it, it, i hope you know i share your optimism that the trajectory is is changing i suppose and it's about less and better so back to your story moving away you'll be mm-hmm. pleased to hear you can now get away from the, the welfare side yeah. um it's been it's been good the trajectory of growth is great you've now got what a good a good number of people your, your prime business is the weekly boxes by right. post where is most of your market and you can you just explain a little bit i suppose about how that's gone in the last few years and what you've learned yeah,
1: yeah sure so um Probably seventy-five percent of our customer base are in London. Um, we've done lots of marketing in London. Um, probably ten percent in the southwest, and then the rest all over the country. Um, we deliver nationwide. Um, we've got lots of customers in the north of Scotland, um, the Isle of Wight. So, delivering all over the place. Um, and business has been—it's you know, been tough. Definitely, we started in a recession. Um, and as I said, we didn't really know what we were doing. We had to learn quickly. Um, lots of moving parts in our business. We had, we thought we could be the butchers and the delivery man and the people selling the product and doing customer service all by ourselves. And quite quickly realized we couldn't. Um, so we, yeah, you know, we had to learn quickly. Um, Cash flow was key. Um, you know, we took money from our customers before we delivered the box. Um, that's something that really helped. Um, having really good quality product um you know we were all about the product it had to taste great we love our beef and um know that's what we looked for and in a subscription business it's not really a subscription business if you don't um have people coming back um the next week or two weeks later so um you know we, we have to work really hard to ensure the quality stays where it is um so we yeah we've now got um probably ten thousand customers and um we're delivering 13 1400 boxes a week um Amazing. so yeah the business is going really well we employ 20 just over 20 people um and yeah it's a really tight-knit team um definitely have a lot of people in the business now that know what they're doing yeah. <laughs> helping me and flower nice. um so yeah we um yeah we still absolutely love it you know we're eight years in and um yeah as I say we've learned a lot but um we 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 feel like there's still a massive opportunity for our business. You know, yeah. people haven't heard of us, and so that's encouraging. How many
0: farms do you work with? Um,
1: yeah. We've probably got the best part of 40 to 50 wow. farms.
0: Yeah. Okay. And are you providing a different option for them? Were they previously sort of feeding into the traditional
1: supply route, I suppose, and now they're seeing this as an opportunity to get closer to the customer? Or? Definitely, yeah. We pay above market price yeah. um, in most cases, and if not market price, um the feedback from farmers is that they love working with us and getting the feedback from customers. We kind of reconnect them. So if we get a great feedback from a customer, we'll send it on to Stu, our chicken farmer yeah. um, or Tom, our lamb farmer. And that's, you know, that's, they enjoy that. I think as much as the, the extra money that we pay them for their produce. Okay. Um, and, and I was chatting to Guy, uh, saying about this, at the podcast will probably have gone
0: out by the time this one does actually, but from Riverford and, uh, Around pricing, I suppose. So in the restaurant trade, you know, we're used to prices fluctuating literally on a you know daily, certainly a weekly Mm. basis depending on uh, supply I guess and weather you know mm-hmm. we've had a really wet last few weeks, so certainly in the in the uh, you know the cauliflower season at the moment and they're being affected by that so so prices really vary um, yet he's able to guarantee uh, some of his farmers the price that he will pay mm. uh, you know a year in advance and tell mm. them he will take that, which I was quite surprised by because generally shortage of cauliflower cauliflower prices yeah. go up um how are you finding that in the, in the meat world are you are these long term relationships or are you still
1: yes we have a supplier agreement with our... With our farmers, and but we, um, we probably talk to our farmers about pricing once a year, yeah. So, um, we, you know, we, because we're a subscription business it's harder for us to change pricing Mm. so we kind of have to set our pricing um and obviously if things change dramatically um obviously it fluctuates but if things change dramatically we will put a price increase on the website and notify our customers but we're pretty stable we tend to change our prices twice a year on the website um i think that consistency is key and obviously you know we build in a bit of margin but we try and explain how we're working with our farmers and why that's important to them Um, and that we're paying above market price. So I think that's, um, that's a real positive thing about our business and why farmers enjoy working with us. And
0: that's presumably giving farmers the confidence then to follow a much better kind of welfare, husbandry kind of standards yeah. than they would if they're at the beck and call of a supermarket that phones up and says, right, it's 50p less a kilo this week because that's what our customers demand. Yeah, uh, exactly. They can they can plan for the longer term, I guess, yeah, by working
1: with you. Exactly. And that's so key, especially... For stew and and you know even planning ahead for christmas with turkeys and geese like we will say this is what should the price be we have a discussion and we find out what works for both parties and we walk away happy with that and that's yeah definitely key as you say to making sure that you've got a sustainable relationship yeah. um and we don't penalize people or farmers so you know, if beef comes in and it's you know slightly over fatty or whatever um you know, hasn't got the right confirmation, we don't do any of that kind of penalising which supermarkets do. Mm. Mm. Okay.
0: Um, you supply uh, domestically. Have you supplied restaurants before? Have you looked at the kind of, you know, the, the, the more traditional hospitality sector, I suppose?
1: Yeah, we get asked quite a lot by restaurants if we supply them. Um, we we don't traditionally. We used to supply some restaurants, but we we're finding it hard, especially in the early days, um, with carcass balance. So if we ship out you know 40 ribeye steaks to a restaurant then we don't have any ribeye steaks for our customers so it didn't work because they weren't taking the whole carcass obviously so um and we get that and also i think restaurants require um consistency as well and so the feedback on our ribeyes were that they tasted amazing but some weeks they were a very different shape um to the previous week and we you know, we don't really know what that's going to look like because we're not penalising those farmers for the beef that we're getting in. Yeah. Um, what that's going to look like, and so you know, the ribeyes did look different mm. um, week on week to the restaurants we were supplying. And in the end, we kind of said, "Well, we can't do anything about that. That's the shape of the animal.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, we haven't got away. We haven't got loads and loads of cattle to kind of be choosing yeah. the right um, size ribeye. So it's the whole wonky
0: carrot thing in meat world, basically. Yeah, exactly. Who's going to buy the
1: wonky beef? Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah we, um, we in the end we kind of said well this isn't it's not working for them it's not working for us so right. um, we didn't pursue the kind of restaurant trade
2: okay
0: because you must have a number of contacts I guess speaking as a restauranteur who's always trying to get closer to the supplier but if uh, yeah so, so getting as close to farms as possible is key I suppose mm. but it always seems to be tricky because of the I guess the abattoir and the butcher needing to get in the way obviously you can't rock up at a farm and buy a live mm. no, cow so yeah no. uh, yeah, I guess there's always going to be some level of level of compromise. But. Yeah, and I think
1: there are some guys out there doing it really well. Um, I think Ginger Pig have really set the standard in in London with how you get a, a beef animal from you know farm in Yorkshire into. I don't know, um, Honest Burgers, for example, and that's, um, there's definitely people out there that are doing it and doing it really well. Yeah. Um, I don't know Ginger Peek, but they're yeah. a beef
0: supplier, are really.
1: Yeah. All yeah. They now do all meat, but yeah, right. they started in beef. Yeah. Really. Okay. They've got some really cool butcher <laughs> shops in London. Yeah. Yeah. Did they supply Honest Burger? Um, they did. Yeah. They
0: did. Oh, I only, I'm interviewing them in a couple of weeks' time, so oh, okay. I, can, yeah. uh, I can quiz them about that. Yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, and then, I'm, so I'm interested in, in the other learnings, I suppose, in any business, you know, these things. So, you know, great concept, uh, cut out the middleman, straight to consumer, mm-hmm. better product, uh, better for the planet, better for the earth. All sounds like a no-brainer, piece of cake. Thank mm. you very much. I'll make loads of money, buy a big house. In reality, <laughs> challenging. Um, What's some of the key challenges been? And, and I'll give you a clue because I know there were some issues just around packaging, for example, mm-hmm. and how do you actually get a product to somebody's front door? Yeah. Uh, it obviously won't fit through a
1: letterbox. Mm. So what, what, what sort of stuff did you learn about that? Yeah, the challenge of what they call the last mile yeah Yeah. it's um it's difficult right because we're kind of in control of most things um but then as we grew the business we stopped delivering ourselves and um we now employ some of our own drivers but we also use dpd for 53 percent of our deliveries this week um and you know inevitably DPD drivers leave boxes in the wrong place. Um, uh, And or they get left at depots because they've got too many deliveries. And that's a real challenge for us. So, we talk a lot about doing um, marketing in certain areas so that we can build routes for our own drivers right. yep. because our own drivers don't make mistakes. Yep. Um, you know, they they deliver um, on time and leave the box where it should be. Yeah. Um, and that's why I've got a lot of um, time for Able and Cole and the, and Riverfin, The way they built their models was around their own drivers and delivery routes to make yeah, sure they seem that,
0: to franchise certain area parts of the country. I think to a to a, d- a delivery local delivery driver or something. I think don't
1: they? Yeah. So yeah, they um, Riverford have got their franchise model um, mm. but Abel and Cole have got you know their own drivers and they will only deliver to certain areas of the country certain right. postcodes and but that means they don't have to use a courier um, but that said I think in the early days we were struggling with our courier um, it was it was new sending meat by post mm. um, for them perishable goods they were quite scared of that um, our boxes come chilled so it doesn't need to go through a refrigerated van um, right. and courier network so um there's been loads of work done by DPD to try and educate the guys at their depots and their drivers around this being a perishable product and the fact that it must be delivered, it must be left safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're under one percent in terms of um, errors by drivers at okay. the moment, and we try and rectify them quite quickly. We've got we've got um, a really good customer service team there now who will phone the driver and say you need you've delivered it ten doors down, you need to go back and get it and deliver it to the right door. <laughs> really? Yeah, oh. and I think okay. it's habit as well. I think as soon as they've delivered one box to a customer yeah. then you know they understand what works it's, it's normally the first time they deliver that we, we hear about an issue but
2: yeah.
1: we've got a really good customer service team and we're we're on top of those things but I would say that's a massive challenge yeah. and I wish we could just deliver every box ourselves
0: yeah it's uh, it's tricky isn't it I'm yeah. laughing because I have a Riverford delivery each mm. week and uh, yeah, if I'm not in they're supposed to leave it behind the caravan so anyone who knows where I live uh, you can just go and find it
1: uh,
0: on my driveway uh, and then the actual packaging itself has there been some challenges around that because yep. I know you know I think Riverford maybe use lamb's wool there's, there's plastic packages there's all sorts of stuff mm. yeah
1: what's what's been your experience of that well rightly so customers are asking for um, environmentally friendly packaging so we moved away from a poly box a long time ago um, but there are still some people delivering in poly boxes um, a poly we, box is what like a plastic it's um, box polystyrene or it? right. yeah okay. box um, it's not great not not recyclable no so exactly so we um and they're bulky and customers didn't like them but so we we've got a cardboard box recyclable cardboard box we have um a silver inner liner um that keeps the product cool with about um three kilos of ice that goes in the box and then our products come vacuum packed and we're currently working with um lots of different people to try and get a biodegradable vacuum pack back, yeah. and we've done lots of tests and i think we're probably three or four months away from that being a viable option and that would dramatically reduce the amount of plastic that's being delivered yeah. but i'd say we're still we're still minimal plastic compared to if you were going to go to the supermarket and yeah. out the carbon footprint of going to the supermarket and yeah. buying big you know deep trays cfp yeah. trays of of mints and
0: what's the challenge with making those plastic pouches biodegradable then do you know
1: um yeah so we found that the product's leaching through so it's actually not um Properly, it's not sealed um, enough. I don't know the technical right, term. Yeah. I've got <laughs> an ulterior doing. motive in asking because yeah. we're the
0: same in the restaurant trade. You know, we yeah. look at where we can minimise plastic. We're the same. Mm. You vacuum pack to uh, prolong life and yep. avoid wastage, which is clearly important. Yep. But yeah, trying to trying to find a plastic that, that g- is genuinely biodegradable and not just exactly. one of those theoretical biodegradable. If you put it in the right waste management facility, yep. and all that kind of stuff. Really, yep. you want to be able to chuck it in with the food
1: waste and it will biodegrade. But yeah, exactly. It's a challenge. I think we're gonna. I think we'll be there soon. Yeah. Hopefully. Okay. Excellent.
0: Yep. Well, keep in touch. <laughs> yeah, cool. we will make make sure that's the same. Um, and then, you know, financing this this growth. How have you done that? Have you crowdfunded mm. it? Have you had to get additional investors on over the course of time, or
1: yeah, we we crowdfunded um, two years ago. Right. So it was the first time that um, as directors we released any equity in the business, and um, we went out to our, lots of our customers. Actually, said, you know, if you ever. Um, uh, looking to do a crowdfunding round, then let us know oh, if a fundraising round. So, we went to CrowdCube yeah. and um, we had a six-week campaign um, where we raised eight hundred and seventy-seven thousand um, from six hundred and fifty people. What um, was your goal? The goal was seven hundred and fifty. <laughs> amazing. Yeah, so we overfunded, um, which is great. And I think fifty-two percent of our um, investors were our customers. Oh, yeah, um So, uh, you know that was amazing for us um for them to show their support and you know become shareholders in the business so feedback's been great um and it was yeah it was a really tough thing doing crowdfunding yeah well because you it became a full-time job really um and then um having to run the business alongside that right and um but we we is i think we struggled with um having the time to kind of get back to the amount of inquiries that we had. And, um, you have to be on top of the forums on, Crowdcube and the questions that are being asked and obviously you have to be quite responsive. So, yeah, it was just juggling everything. But in the end, it worked out really well and Crowdcube were great. And, um, yeah, it's allowed us to kind of invest in the business and continue to grow it. Yeah, And um, I hear that can be quite stressful because you get
0: a load of money in the first week and mm. then nothing for kind of four or five weeks and then yeah. all the money in the last three days. Was that your experience? Or
1: y- Yeah, definitely. So you have to go to the platform with kind of like at least 25% of the... Um, funds. And so we did that. And um, yeah, you're right. You kind of get off to a good start and then it kind of slows in the middle and um, it did slow for us. (laughs) And uh, so then you kind of have to push a bit harder on the marketing and have more conversations. And um, yeah, you have to hustle, which we did. And um, eventually kind of things picked up again. And then as soon as you're close to reaching your target, um, I think, you know, we had a £100,000 put in in the last Forty-eight hours. Something
0: yeah. That, yeah, I think once you're close enough, CrowdCube seem to put it out there, and then that becomes almost yeah.
1: self-fulfilling once people see. Yeah,
0: there's enough people invested.
1: So that's right. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're competing with another thirty people that are uh, thirty businesses that are on the platform. Yeah, mm.
0: yeah. No, fascinating model. Though. I think that's the one good thing that came out the back of the recession is this ability to ask lots of people for a little bit of money yeah. rather than one person for yeah. for, a, for a lot.
1: So, what's the plans from here then? How much bigger do you want to grow? What do you think is realistic? I think in terms of our growth. Um, We haven't set any real targets um we really enjoy what we're doing um clearly we want to keep growing the business we think that there's lots of opportunity for us and all the time that we're growing you know we're helping farmers and that's a great thing um but we yeah we want to get to um a point where you know we look at riverford and abel and Cole, and we think well why can't we try and aspire to be that size and do what those guys have done because they've done an incredible job Mm. so um, yeah really hoping that um, we have another eight years like the the eight years we've just had Mm.
0: Is the challenge more around the uh, demand for the product or the supply of the product do you you see is it easy to fulfil demand if you get a a kind of
1: exponential growth all of a sudden Yeah I think we definitely have to plan it and manage it and that's what my business partner does Um, Well delegated (laughs) (laughs) Um, You just get more people in Yeah yeah, my job is to Get the customers um, and look after them, and um, James is to make sure the product comes in the door. But we um, we have lots of people, as I said earlier, lots of farmers that want to come and supply us. And there Mm. are, I we've diversified our range as well. So you know we do veal, mutton. We're about to start hopefully doing goat. Um, We have fish, which has been really popular. Mm. So we've diversified. Um, We still want to be known for being. Um, a company that sells high-quality meat and fish. We're not going to start selling vegetables, but um, we we think that there are enough farmers out there um, to help us grow um, at the rate we are, we're currently growing. Okay. But it's it does cool. take a bit of planning.
0: Complicated when you get into fish, isn't it? Because animals at least stay in a field if you put a fence mm. up, whereas fish move all around the world. How have you managed to get a similar welfare standard approach to fish because it's complicated.
1: Yeah, with fish, it's um, something we've been selling for a couple of years. And um, we have chalk stream trout and Loch Duart who do our salmon up in Scotland, um, both farmed. And then we have we work with a fishmonger, who's based in Shoreham, who um, is buying day boat caught fish from market um, right. every day. So, okay. And we do a catch of the day box. So that's one way around kind of the fish supply issue is to say to our customers, um, buy a catch-of-the-day box and we'll put what comes in that day from that boat in that box at a set price. And that's working really well. It's been popular.
0: So logistically, then, you're having to get that, what's sent to you,
1: because you're Mm, packaging it at the same place as the meat. So um, he's currently buying the product he's a master fishmonger he's then packing it right. labeling it for us and okay. then it comes into us but it's come in uh, within 24 hours and then out to the customer and then straight out yeah, yeah
0: it's always these things are always uh, yeah more complicated than you imagine mm. behind the scenes i suppose so um and and yeah, so I guess you're comfortable then that they're, you know, you're know you not going to need to compromise on the ethics as you grow. There's enough uh, people that share your ethos. I guess that's why you're writing those standards, the, mm. your own standards. It makes yeah. it a lot easier to then judge whether the people who are knocking on your door uh, meet your criteria. Because is, is it still
1: the case that you need to meet every person that's producing product for you? Yeah, certainly we try to. Um, and um you know, as we've grown the business, we're still a fairly small business, so it's it's um it's difficult to get out as much as we used to. But that's why we're putting our welfare standards in place.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, we we know that there are enough farmers in the West Country. Uh, working systems that you know we traditionally buy from in the way that we started our farm so we we can't see there being a problem clearly there will come a point if we became a huge business where yeah that might challenge but at the moment we're still a fairly small business so I don't think it's an issue it's good to know that there's enough farmers
0: that are still farming that way because I think you get worried as a mm. consumer that they're all compromising and, yeah, and just cows disappearing from speed. the fields yeah exactly yeah. but yeah so so they are also supplying presumably the local kind of you know butchers and farm shops and that kind of stuff so.
1: yeah exactly so um lots of our so all of our beef um that's reared on home farm obviously comes to us but then um we have other farm other beef farmers that will supply us with a percentage of what's fit you know uh, on their farm for that that week so yeah they will be supplying other people as well and stew our chicken farmer i think we probably take i don't know 80 percent of his chicken every week and then he'll supply some local restaurants and uh, farm shops okay and
0: this issue around um, customer choice, a guy from Riverford got particularly, um, what's the word, animated, shall mm. we say, when we were chatting about this, because he fundamentally believes that, um, you know, quite all too often the customer gets too much choice. Mm-hmm. And we touched on this when we were chatting earlier about the uh, the, the thing with baby gem lettuce. And mm-hmm. Tesco, for example, might want a load of baby gems for the weekend because it's a beautiful sunny weather and it's yep. a barbecue weekend, and they go to their supplier, and the supplier is so terrified of, of not being able um, to supply that they'll yeah. end up flying kind of baby gems in from California yeah. or something like that just to fulfill demand. Yeah. Whereas actually my perspective would be the customer doesn't mind, he wants some yeah. lettuce, he doesn't mind too much what he gets. So Guy is very adamant around not giving people too much choice mm-hmm. with these veg boxes and saying, look, this is what's coming this mm-hmm. week, it's in season, it's ready now. Because he doesn't know whether his Romanescos are gonna be ready in yeah. you know, early September yeah. or late October, it depends yeah. on the weather. Do you think there's an argument for similar in, in meat in the fact that it would be a lot easier with that whole carcass perspective if people just ate what they were given or is it easier in meat because it's less of a seasonal product
1: yeah I mean it's easier definitely easier than the challenges that Guy has um with the seasonality of of fruit or well, fruit and vegetables I think um you know, beef animal this week is a beef animal next week. Um, we know pretty much how many steaks we're going to get off it. and um, The trends that we get from our customers kind of dictate, um, you know, how many animals we need. And we're quite good at kind of forecasting that out. The answer to that question really is that if we had more flat iron steaks ordered than... We had coming through the 10 beef animals um this week then we would phone the customers and say um we've actually you know haven't got your flat irons um can we swap them with um an onglet for example and um put that to them and explain why and i think that's critical is to is the communication um and it's the same for for fish as well, particularly, um, is to say, well, this is, you know, this is why this has happened. And actually, customers are really reasonable. And they're like, well, thanks for letting me know. Like, that's <laughs> absolutely fine. Um, and we don't, there isn't so much of an issue with yeah.
0: that. I think it's nice. It's the same in the restaurant. I think is it, it gives an opportunity to actually articulate how exactly. strong your supply chain is, isn't it? Yeah. So far, customers come in on a... So Normally, a Monday or Tuesday, and they get very angry about the fact that we might not have any fish. And I'm mm. always like, Look, it was a really rough weekend, yep. so the boats haven't been exactly. out, they couldn't go out on Monday morning. So, there's a re- you know, the reason we don't have any fish is the last yep. time the, the day boats that you can see out the window in one of my restaurants yep. was out was Thursday. Yep. And, and actually, if people get that, they're kind of yep. like, Oh, that's great. And then we yep. say, Look, we so we decided not to fly the equivalent across from California, yep. but we just you know, we've got this fish today instead, and, and people love it. It's it, it is an education piece, it's why I do these mm. podcasts, is I think it's so important that the consumer starts to, understand a little bit more about our food and drink supply chain and where stuff comes from and uh, yeah, That's compromises correct. a little bit more I suppose so you've had lots of roles from literally well everything by the sounds of it from being the butcher the chef you know what what now in your uh, in your role in your day-to-day life gives you the most kind of uh, buzz
1: and the most reward um I think being um up at the butchery, so operations at the moment, um, spending a lot of time there uh, in preparation for Christmas um, to see the product going into boxes and then to see customer feedback is what still kind of drives us on. And we know that we're producing a really good product and um, delivering a really good service for our customers. Um, in terms of my role, I still wear kind of many hats um, and um, I think I've become more defined as we've brought in people to the business that know what they're doing. Um, so I don't have to be, um, the head of finance anymore, not my forte. Um, so we, um, Farah and I kind of look at kind of bigger picture stuff, I guess. So just, you know, managing supply chains and, um, looking at new business opportunities and, um, ensuring that, you know, um, the business is going in the right direction um so yeah i mean we're we're not you know hands-on although i'll be in the fridge at christmas packing uh, christmas boxes when we need to be um but it's nice to kind of not be working in the business but you know it's a bit of a cliche but working on the business
0: yeah nice mm-hmm. uh how far in advance do people need to be booking their christmas turkeys
1: well, um, we started taking orders, um, I think, at the end of September. People oh. were placing their Christmas really? tackles, which always amazes me. Yeah. Um, but we are we were getting lots of orders daily at the moment. Um, and Stu's doing our turkeys this year, and I think we've um, we've got 800. So when they're gone, they're gone. Oh, okay. um, and um, so we would say try and get your order in um, by kind of the first week of December. Okay. <coughs>
0: yeah. That's my challenge. Where are we now? Okay, now we've got... Oh yeah, yeah, probably just about as this podcast goes out, I suspect we're <laughs> yeah. running a few weeks ahead. Um, and then is there any uh, any advice that you've either been given in this business journey or anything you've learned? Because I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are either new businesses in the world of hospitality and food and drink, or yep. thinking of getting into it and they want yep. to give up their office jobs. But yeah, any, any uh, terrible advice you've heard and you go, just ignore that? Or any really good advice where you go, whatever you do, uh, this mm. is a little nugget for you?
1: Yeah, I think looking back I'd say you have to be really resilient Um, you know you'll get knocks and you got to get back up and keep going and I said to someone this week you know it's about being in the game you know and and just making sure that you're there sometimes it's just survival um, and that's fine Um, also I think focus on product because there's lots of companies out there that we're looking at in our space um, recipe box companies that A kind of reverse engineering their businesses um, off the back of how many boxes they need to kick out for it to be successful and actually I don't think they're focused enough on product and customer service and I think that's massive. I think you have to know your product, um, you have to understand it and you have to be able to deliver really good customer service, you know, don't just put a pure chat on your website and expect that to be the way that you can look after a customer. so I would say, yeah, product, customer service, the team massive things that sometimes it seems to me like can be overlooked a bit.
0: Yeah, it's disappointing sometimes. I think that almost the necessity of financial survival, like you say, you, you reverse engineer, you go, well, actually to survive, we need to sell this many boxes. Mm. So it's whatever it takes. And You like to think that that stay authentic, stay close to your uh, ethics and ethos of what you believe in, and ultimately, mm. um, that will well, that will come out okay. So yeah,
1: exactly. You have to be able to back up what you're doing yeah. as well, and that's massive, and that's why you know, we're writing our own welfare standards, yeah. which is quite a big task for a, for a small business. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think mm.
0: the key, and I always say this to my team as well, is that whatever decision is made, uh, and and it becomes harder as you employ more and more people, but they've you know they've got to bear in mind that ultimately I need to be able to see it or stand in front of a customer uh, yeah. and look them in the eye yeah. and, and give them a you know a justified reason mm. as to why we made that decision. And if we have made a compromise, the reason that we've made it. And if we can't do that, I'd rather not sell the product. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've given prawns as an example. When I was chatting to yeah. Mitch Tonks on the podcast not long ago as well about, you know, I wasn't willing to sell prawns because most of them come in from Vietnam and Asia yeah. and are grown in big vats and pump full of antibiotics. Yeah, an and admittedly, there are some that aren't, and I think we've got some on the Christmas menu that we've sourced the right way. But yeah, it's always it's always a challenge. So uh, hopefully, I mean, I think uh, what you're doing is is genuinely brilliant. I think you're part of the solution for the disillusionment that I've had, you know, a little bit in the in the food <laughs> supply chain and the compromises that have been made. But they're compromises that I think have just come through to you know a lack of education with the wrong people, um, you know, focused on. On price, and I think as we're learning this, and we're learning the compromises that we make, and we're learning a bit more about the climate emergency, and we're learning that it's all well and good, you know, not um, you know throwing a plastic bottle away, but actually, diet—what we choose to eat and where we choose to eat—has the biggest environmental mm-hmm. impact out of anything that we do mm-hmm. uh, you know people like you and what you stand for are doing you know such a great thing on both sides because you're helping out the producer and the farmer to have the confidence to farm in a better way and you're helping the consumer uh, you yeah, a little bit less guilty kind of eating because food and hospitality is supposed to be fun isn't it we're supposed to sit down with our family fun, yeah. tuck into amazing food yeah and that's kind of one of the purposes of life I think we're lucky as a species that it's not you know we don't just eat to live you know we have this amazing uh, palate so thank you for doing what you do
1: no problem. Uh, where should
0: people go to to uh, to find out more about you either the website or social media
1: Yes, we've got um, an Instagram, Facebook, Twitter handle, which is at Field and Flower, uh, and our website is fieldandflower.co.uk.
0: Amazing that you've actually got them all the same with yeah, no yeah, underscores yeah. and dashes no, and all that kind of stuff. I hope I've got so. that right. I think <laughs> I have. <laughs> I believe you have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, good, excellent. Well, uh, thank you for sparing the time. Good luck. Uh, I will. I will watch with pleasure. And if you do decide to go back into supplying the restaurant industry again, then uh, let me know. We'll be a customer. I will, d Mark. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and remember that on the website humansofhospitality.co.uk every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned and we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics so you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice. That would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be out with another episode next
2: Monday.